Well, I've lived in Colorado for 12 years, and uh, I sometimes am able to muster up the courage to drive on mountain roads. Um, it's a well-known fact, and some of you in this room have uh, witnessed this firsthand, because uh, when I'm journeying up to Winter Park for the mill retreat or something like that, I would say, hey, would you guys drive instead of me? Because, you know, I'd rather it be you. There's a little bit of precipitation on the road. And um, oftentimes, I mean, this is kind of the, the joke in our home, I'll let you in on it. Oftentimes when it is snowing, I, I turn the wheel over to my wife who grew up in Iowa. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, my, my excuse is I grew up in Malaysia. It doesn't snow there. But the mountain roads in Colorado are quite uh, beautiful, but they're also a little bit scary, at least to me. Uh, you know, and they're, and they're, they're breathtaking on, this, on, on the drives. And you think about I-70, um, people going at all kinds of speeds on I-70. But then you come to this stretch, and it's the Eisenhower Tunnel. And uh, I remember the first couple times I tried to get my kids to play the game of let's see who can hold your breath through the Eisenhower Tunnel. And then about halfway through, I realized this is probably not such a good idea. You can breathe now, kids, breathe. Because we don't want anyone passing out in the car. It's a long tunnel. And think about how amazing it is that where there is a mountain, all of a sudden there's a highway that goes through it. I wonder what it must have been like for the first pioneers who were going west, who had their hearts full of hope, who had dreams of land, maybe of gold, maybe of a different life that was going to open up for them, and journeying as they were in wagons and horses and all this stuff, and all of a sudden arriving at the mountains. And we know that probably, well, we know that loads of them didn't make it. But for many, many, many of them, that was the end of the road. That was, that was it. And you have to wonder if they got there, some of them, and said, wait a second, this wasn't in the flyer. I was told there was land and gold. and this, Nobody said there were these huge mountains in the way. And all of a sudden, just like that, imagine for a moment all of that hope all of that vision of a new life, of a new start, of something, of a new possibility, all of a sudden coming to an end. The truth is, we all probably have moments like that where we can think about the moments where you run into a wall and you run into a dead end in life. And maybe, I'm, I'm 34 now, I've realized that the, most of the scripts or the storylines that I thought, about, I thought were for my life when I was 19 and 20 were wrong. And probably if we were to go around the room and to ask you what scripts did you have in your head when you were younger or at a, when you were beginning something new, we've all probably had moments when you think, wait a minute, I'm starting something here. There's a new possibility. There's a new this. There's a new hope. There's something different that's beginning, and you're going in it, and then all of a sudden, it's over. The job that was supposed to mean this kind of a house and this kind of a life is no more. Or the marriage that was supposed to look like these um, number of kids and this white fence and the dog and all, all of a sudden is no more. And whatever it is, there are these things that happen to us where we run into a dead end. Run into a place that we say, wait a minute, is this the end of the road? For the first followers of Jesus Christ, Friday was the end of the road. Friday was a dead end. A few days ago, I don't know if you were there, but we had a Good Friday service up at New Life North at the, the other campus. Uh, I, I want to say the main campus, but I think we're on our way uh, down here. Um, <laughs> and um, we had a Good Friday service there, and, and we talked about how 
It's easy for us to look back at Good Friday and think of it with happiness and to think about it with gratitude and say, yay, Jesus. But for these first followers of Jesus, there was nothing good about that Friday. It was full of despair. It was full of doubt. It was full of questions. It was one more disappointment in God. It was one more reason to say, God, what the heck? I thought this was going to be and this guy was supposed to be, and we sold all, and we followed, and we walked, and we listened, and we obeyed, and we lost jobs and careers. At one point, the disciples say, but Lord, we've given up homes and families and jobs for you. And he says, don't worry, not one of you that has done this will not be without a reward. And then he dies. What is this? This is a dead end. The gospel writers want to tell us that Jesus' death on the cross was real and actual. It wasn't an illusion. They want to show us a very human Jesus. And so the seven last words of Jesus on the cross are human words. There's a word about forgiveness to the one who's doing this, ones who are doing this. There's a word about his mother being taken care of. There's a word about his own thirst. This is not Superman Jesus. This is Jesus, the human being. Dying, dying fully on the cross. Until you see that, it's difficult to imagine what Sunday morning must have felt like when they went early to the tomb because they weren't coming early for a sunrise service. They were coming with more grief and more sadness and more hollow hearts and more gnawing doubt and disappointment in their guts. And they show up at this tomb totally unprepared for what they were about to see. You see, we think of Jesus' resurrection like just another party trick Jesus did. I'm dead. Just kidding. Or maybe he's a little bit like the guy in Terminator 2, liquid metal or whatever. You know, they try to kill him and then they roll a pool of, you know, what mush and all of a sudden he's (laughs) rises back. And some of our Christian songs make Jesus seem like that, the superhero that we thought was dead, but he's not really dead. The grave couldn't keep him down. You can't keep a good man down. And we say these silly things as if Jesus was this superhero that death was just a little party trick and the resurrection was really what God was saying, boo. But it wasn't that at all. Nothing could have prepared these men and women for what they saw that day. Resurrection, you see, had never happened before. Never happened. They had no category for it. There was no file for this. When Jesus healed the blind, they said, oh yeah, we've seen, we've heard of prophets doing this. When Jesus made the widow's son rise, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, they had a file for that. Elijah did some of that. They knew that. But when God raised Jesus from the dead and he became something new, they didn't have a file for that. Where does this go? You understand the difference between Lazarus or the widow's son and Jesus? Those people were resuscitated. They were brought back to life only to die again. Jesus was resurrected Something old of his old body was there. It wasn't like there was bones somewhere and then there was a spirit Jesus walking around. There's a reason we we are told that the, the gospel writers tell us, no, the tomb was empty. 
God took this old material of his body and reconstituted it into something different. Something that still had wounds, something that could still eat and drink as he does numerous times, and yet something that could appear in a room with locked doors. What is going on? Something completely different has happened. I sometimes wonder if those pioneers who were trying to go west on horse and buggy and trying to cross the mountains could now see the Eisenhower Tunnel. It would blow their minds. Wait a minute, you did what? You had these drills made with what? And these blasts? And you, you put a highway through it? Yeah. It's something completely new. The resurrection of Jesus was not God saying, well, let's try to find an old way around an old problem. It was God saying, let me bring something explosive and new into this world that opens a new highway in the middle of the mountain of death. Something new has exploded in the world. This morning, I want us to, to, to see and to hear and to believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the most explosive thing there is. The most explosive thing there is. We talk glibly sometimes about wanting to change the world and wanting to make history. Jesus' resurrection brought the future into the present. That'll blow your mind. Jesus' resurrection brought this life of the age to come, something that was only supposed to happen at the very end of the age. He brings it forward into the middle of time. Wait, what? And it explodes away where there was no way. There are three people that we're going to look at this morning in John's Gospel for whom the death of Jesus was particularly the end of the road, was a dead end. And we're going to see what the resurrection of Jesus meant for them. And the first person we're going to look at is what did the resurrection of Jesus mean for the outsider? Her name is Mary Magdalene. She's named in all the Gospels. One of the things we know about her, or we're told about her, is that she used to have seven demons in her. I don't know what you think about demons and what you think the Bible writers meant when they said demons, but I'm going to guess that this is not the gal you want to invite over for tea. Whatever it is when people mean that she had seven demons, it's not a kind thing to say. This woman had some sort of issue, had some sort of problem, had something that kept her marginalized, that kept her on the outside. Not only was she a person that had had seven demons, she's a woman. And I don't mean to be offensive to our modern sensibilities, but in the first century, a woman was not as dignified, as, was not held with as much dignity as a man. They weren't allowed to learn in the synagogue. So even in the religious communities, they were outside. And yet this woman is named consistently in the Gospels. And every time Jesus, the Gospel writers tell us about women who follow Jesus, guess whose name comes first? Mary Magdalene's. In Jesus, she had found a new possibility, a new life. Something had, was going to be different for her. Something was so promising 
All her life she'd been left out and overlooked and excluded and people made excuses for her and left her out. And then all of a sudden there was this man that spoke kindly to her, that looked her in the eyes, that loved her. And now he was dead. And Mary comes to the tomb that Sunday morning pretty sure that she's going to have to go back to how it was. Pretty sure that this was all just make-believe. This was a nice ride while it lasted, but I guess it's over now. John 20, verse 11. And Mary stood outside near the tomb crying. And as she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And the angels asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. And as soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus says, said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Jesus at first plays the part, says to her what she thinks everyone's going to say to her. Not the angels and not Jesus at first. No one calls her by her name. She's just woman. And Jesus says to her, what she sort of expects to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm back to this. I'm back to just being woman. Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. Verse 16, And Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all he says. He doesn't say, Hey, Mary, look. You know, Mary, Isaiah said, he doesn't say, now Mary, let me give you a, a little tour of these, the prophets. He just says her name. He just says Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me for I have not yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is Jesus saying to her, listen, Mary, it's not over for you. You're not on the outside. You thought you were going to go back to just being a person, a nameless person. But listen, Mary, your God, your Father, He's yours too. You're in. You're included in this. And then he gives her this remarkable role of going and telling the others. Considering that women weren't allowed to testify in a Roman court, it's significant that the gospel writers tell us the eyewitnesses to the resurrection or to the empty tomb, to the risen Jesus, were women. Ones whom society says, hey, well, you stay over there. See, there are places and times in life when we think we've come to a dead end. And it means that this is as far as we can get. Maybe I'm just doomed to be second class in church. Maybe I don't fit. Maybe I don't belong. Maybe everybody else is happy. Maybe everybody else gets this. But, but then there's me, and I don't really fit. I, I'm sort of outside this. I'm, I'm, I, I, I. I want to tell you this morning that we're all outsiders. Every one of us. All of us are like Mary Magdalene, plagued by our own seven demons. None of us who had a name until Jesus called our name. Life had 
brought us to a dead end. Culture had pushed us out. And Jesus says, wait a minute. No, 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 no. You're Mary. Not only do I see you and know your name, I've got something for you to do. Go and tell the others. Me? But, I, but I'm, I'm Mary Magdalene. I, I, I'm a woman. I'm, go and tell the others. This is Jesus, his resurrection, exploding out the dead end that she had come to and bringing her new dignity. The next person in this story, as John kind of goes on, is Thomas. Now, we're used to calling Thomas the doubter. But I think that's a bit unfair. I'm calling him this morning Thomas the Wounded. And maybe for a number of reasons. Maybe because those with doubts are often wounded by those without doubts. Maybe because those with doubt have already been wounded. But Thomas, John tells us, is hesitant to believe this. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. And the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. And Thomas responded to Jesus, My Lord, my God. These are worship words. These are words of saying, Jesus, I think it's not just teacher or good man, my Lord and my God. I wonder how you and I would respond in this moment. Because I think when someone says, well, hey, look, I, I, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure about this whole resurrection business. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we want to say to them, okay, well, listen, here is some apologetics. Here's some answers for you. Here's some proofs of the resurrection. Here's ten reasons why it's irrefutable. And here's the case for Christ. And here's all those things. And maybe all those things have a place, maybe. But I suspect they don't really help Thomas. And when Jesus comes to Thomas, he doesn't give him theology or philosophy or logic. What he shows Thomas are his wounds. His wounds. I think when God answers suffering, it's not with, well, you see, there's this thing about free will and, and you know, choice, and that's what got evil. And, and I think when we cry out to God and we say, God, why? To the brokenness in the world... He doesn't give an explanation. He gives the incarnation. He doesn't give an explanation. He gives the incarnation. We have a God who entered into it and said, I've got wounds too. You want to see? I bled. I cried out. I had this moment on the cross where I was sure that God had forsaken me. 
I was afraid in the garden. I was alone. I've got wounds too. What we want when we think about pain is we want a God who makes it all go away. I saw a commercial on TV last night, and it, it begins with this computer graphic of a storm system. It's kind of this eye of the storm thing, and, it's, and there's this voiceover saying, an unprecedented storm is moving, you know. And then it cuts to a scene on a highway, and there's all these cars that are backed up in traffic like people evacuating a city. And then all of a sudden, there's this woman in the passenger seat of a car that says, don't worry to her husband, I've got us covered. And I thought it was a joke. And she pulls out her iPhone, and there's an app, and I won't say the name of the company in case any of you work for them. But, but she touches the app, and the app then cuts to a picture of a huge truck with supplies and relief work and all this stuff, which is wonderful. And then their slogan says, we'll make it so that it's as if it never happened. You think the people in Joplin think that? Or New Orleans? Or Swazi, where I just was a couple weeks? You think it's, we can just sort of snap? God, just make it like it never happened. Is that what you want from God? See, the resurrection is not God saying, Wow, sorry about that Friday thing. That was awkward. That was quite a bloody mess, wasn't it? Let's wipe that up, shall we? Do you know almost every time the apostles speak about Jesus being raised, they don't speak about Jesus rising. They speak about God raising Jesus. The difference is, you're meant to see that this Jesus really was lying in a grave. Really. And God raised him. And he doesn't raise him to have a body that's sparkling new. A body that is totally different, and yet a body that has scars, wounds. So that when you, like Thomas, say, God, how can it be? I like this church stories, and it feels cute, and it's kind of nice on Easter to be here dressed up and to have a little lunch afterwards with my friends, but doggone it, when I read the newspaper or look online or watch the news, I just can't believe that you really care. And in that moment, God offers you not answers, but his scars. And says, put your hand in these wounds. Put your hand in these scars. I came. I suffered, I died, I've been there, and I rose. God raised me. And if God raised Jesus, what will God do for the whole cosmos itself? Think about that. Paul says this in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. Over and over again, Paul picks up on this. He says, wait a minute, imagine something here. If this is really true, if God really did raise Jesus out of the tomb, imagine what God will do to this whole world itself. Friends, there will be, we believe, an Easter day for the whole cosmos itself. If this world is staggering drunk with the infection of sin and wickedness and disease and famine and sorrow and untimely deaths, then one day, God the Creator who raised Jesus from the dead will raise this world into new life. That's why we hope. That's why we believe. For Thomas the wounded, 
The death of Jesus was not the end of the road because resurrection says there's a God who has wounds and wants you to see them. The last person that John tells us that Jesus encounters is Peter. Now, Peter, we all know and we all love. And Peter was supposed to be the leader. Peter was this guy who confessed Jesus is the Messiah. Peter was the guy who had so much promise, so much potential. He's the kid at youth camp that you think that guy is going to do great things for God. He, he's the gal that, that, that when she was a little girl used to, used to speak about Jesus in, in her church groups and to her friends. But Peter's the guy that somewhere along the way failed miserably. Do any of you know what it's like to have had potential? To have had promise? To have had expectation from others? And yet fallen miserably short? We want to say, well, Glenn, you, you, don't, understand, you don't know. You don't understand. Look, look, look. I, I, was, I used to do this whole church thing. I, I was going to be like you. I was going to be in ministry. I was going to do this. But then this happened. And that happened. And we had a baby and we weren't pregnant or the divorce or the job or the addiction or the thing. And I just we didn't see that coming. And it's too late now, right? It's too late now. I, I, I failed. It's all over. There's no, more, there's no more potential. It's just failure. I imagine that's what Peter felt. Peter in John 21, verse 1 says this, Later Jesus himself appeared again to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and this is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other disciples were together, and Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. Now this is not like, hey, let's have a nice Saturday and go fishing. This is Peter saying, hey guys, the gig's up. It's over. But you know what? We used to be fishermen. Let's see if we can do that. And they said, we'll go with you. And they set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Imagine the conversations. Gee, Peter, you can't even fish now. It's one thing that you couldn't follow Christ, but you, what, you can't even catch fish now? What's the matter with you? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. And Jesus called to them, children, have you caught anything to eat? And they answered him, no. We suck. We're just lousy. Sorry. Is that appropriate on Easter? I'm sorry. Okay. He said, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they did. And there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around himself for he was naked. I don't know why. Uh, I'm just reading it. And if this is how you go fishing, I'm not coming with you. And jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, but they weren't far from shore, only about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them, yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came, took bread, gave it to them, 
This language sounds familiar, doesn't it? And he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter has failed and he knows it. Peter couldn't be the guy that he wanted to be. Peter couldn't be Mr. Posterman Christian. He couldn't be the poster child of every of his parents' expectations or whatever it was. He couldn't meet the pressures of this or that. He failed, he failed, he failed. And now he went back to his old job and he was failing at that. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Peter who's come to the end of the road. Peter who's met a dead end. Jesus gives Peter a meal. He says, Peter, have you caught anything? No, nothing. Let me help you. Not only does he help Peter catch fish, somehow Jesus has fish of his own that's already cooking. He's just got to turn it on the other side now. What is this? What are we meant to see in this story? Sometimes when you think about failure, you think that maybe what God gives us is second, a second chance. I want to say to you this morning, erase that from your vocabulary. God is not about second chances, nor is, he, nor is he about a thousand chances. You could have as many chances that you want, as you want. You'll never do it. You remember that moment in school when you were called in front of the class on the chalkboard to work on an algebra problem, and you couldn't do it, and you're sweating bullets up there, and you're trying to fool around, and you're doing X's and Y's and lines, and you're hoping it all makes sense, and the teacher says, yeah, you haven't got it. It's wrong. He said, yeah, I know. But I've got good news for you. What's that? I'm wiping the slate clean. Okay. And you get to try again. (laughs) Can I just sit down? This isn't good news. Don't turn the gospel into an announcement about second chances. It's not that. The gospel is the news that you can't, but that Jesus has made you breakfast. What I mean by that is Jesus has prepared the meal for you when you couldn't prepare a meal for yourself. When there was everything that you were failing at and you couldn't even feed yourself, Jesus is the one that's saying, I'm the risen Christ. I am more than enough. I am more than enough. I've got you covered. Now I just need to know, Peter, are you in? Are you in? Because I've got breakfast waiting for you. This whole scene of catching fish and not catching fish and then Jesus saying casting is very much like how Peter first met Jesus. And I wonder if it's Jesus' way of saying, Peter, let's go back to the start. But let's go back to the start and remember, I was always the one who gave you the fish. I was always the one who fed you. And even now, let's have a resurrection meal together. Here's breakfast on the beach. The gospel announcement is not that you can try again. Good luck. The gospel announcement is that your efforts will always be a dead end. We're going to fail. We're going to fail. But here is the risen Jesus saying, I'm giving you the food, the meal. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table of the Lord, and I've become, a, I've become fond of saying that when you come to the table of the Lord, 
There's nothing you need to bring. This is not like the Midwest potluck with my in-laws in Iowa where someone brings a green bean casserole and someone else will bring that potato salad. Jesus gives his body as our bread. Jesus gives his blood as our drink. What nourishes us to live? What brings us strength and grace to move beyond the dead end of failure? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Amen? When I say that Jesus' resurrection is the most explosive thing there is, I'm saying that whatever the dead end is, you think you're at. Maybe like Mary. I'll never break that line. I'm an outsider. I'll never be in the inner circle. Jesus has exploded through that mountain. I'm like Thomas. There's too, many, too much pain. It's too difficult to really believe this. Jesus has exploded through that mountain with wounded hands. Peter, you say, well, I failed. I've made a mess. It's over. It's just... Jesus has exploded through that mountain. We are today, friends, people of the resurrection. That means in Christ, your sin is not the last word. In Christ, your addiction is not the end of the story. In Christ, divorce is not the end of the road. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, despair, death, as the New Testament reading said, will not have the last say. It won't. Your resurrection, people. But what that also means is that sometimes, maybe there's, okay, so we're good with the internal walls that have been exploded out, but then there's these exterior walls that we kind of build around us and say, well, it's me and my tribe, my family, my people. This is us. This is me. And I don't really want them so much, more just us. Jesus' resurrection explodes those walls. Completely. Completely. So, well, Glenn, I, I don't know about church. I like this Jesus guy. He seems really neat. But church, there's a whole lot of people that are just, they're, they're, they're hypocritical and they're failures and they're supposed to be leaders, but they act like they deny Christ. Oh, do you mean like Peter? Because he's going to eat with us today. So, well, I, I mean, okay. But, but, you know, there's this other person who just, they're, they're, they're kind of an outsider, and, and they're just, I mean, I don't know what they, what they believe, and they're just so liberal, and, and they're just, I don't know, and I, they, they don't, they have this label on them. They're part of the resurrection community, too. You mean like Mary Magdalene? Yeah. So, well, but, but what about, I mean, there's people that are sitting here, Glenn, that we don't even know if they believe the Bible. Okay? Like Thomas? You don't have the option of following the risen Savior without taking with him the company of the resurrected people. We're all together in this. It's a nice dream to say, I love Jesus, but I don't know about church. I just want to hang out with my people and do my thing and just sort of have my thing. And I'll come once in a while. Look, it ain't church until there's people here that you wouldn't have chosen to be there. 
You think John, who calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, wanted to break bread with Peter or scoundrel Peter? Jesus had an unlikely bunch that became his first church. Here we are, New Life Downtown, Sunday number one. I hope that we have chairs next week, more chairs, more room, less people. I don't know. That's hard to say. But this is going to be a strange bunch. But what defines us is the risen Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's get ready to come. Amen. Let's thank God.